Welcome to episode 52 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. It's January 24th. Did you know that if you say that backwards, it sounds exactly the same? Well, it doesn't. Even in Nebraska. I'm sorry about my voice. I've had COVID, which is very retro of me, I know. Thank you to everyone who sent me their best and worst sports moments by email. Evidently, that is a topic that unites men across the country and the world. I read this week about years and years and years of hurt. And do you know what? It made me feel better. It really did. I am now a lot more relaxed about the Jaguars season, and I'm even looking forward to the next one. I suppose it's a bit like being really hungover. The day of the hangover, you say you'll never drink again. You can't imagine wanting a drink. But then the day after that comes, and by 6pm, someone offers you a glass of wine, and you think, yeah, that's what I want to do. And you forget all about the hangover until next time. So I'm now convinced that next year will be different. Glorious, even. I can't see how it could possibly go wrong. So tune into this podcast in January of next year to find out how it did. Before I get to my guest, I want to rant a little bit. Not about sports, no. Not this week. But about the state of our politics. Now, I think it's important for people who talk publicly about politics to be honest about how they view politics. And by that, I don't just mean that we should tell the truth. I mean that we should make sure that we say all of what we think instead of just some of it. In this business, sins of omission can be as bad as sins of commission, There's a reason that in courtrooms they require that witnesses tell not just nothing but the truth, but the whole truth. And that reason is that it's pretty easy to say a lot of things that are true while missing out a whole load of other true things in the process, and in so doing to mislead people pretty badly. And I don't want to do that. So I'm going to say something that people who do what I do for a job are not supposed to say. That at the moment, politics is boring. That's the only word for it. It's boring. It's boring. It's dull. Tedious. Tiresome. Uninteresting. Drab. It's boring. And not in the good way. A boring politics can be really healthy. In many ways, I yearn for a boring politics. Give me the late 1990s any day of the week. But I don't yearn for this setup, in which nothing of consequence is ever debated, and what is debated is as malleable as putty. 
I can remember back in 2015 being made editor of National Review Online and being really excited that I'd moved into that position just before a presidential election in which big ideas would be batted around. And one night, just before I took over the role, I took my parents out for dinner and I told them there was a reasonable chance that the next president would be a Republican and that this was quite exciting to me because there would be an agenda to cover and argue about and legislation to consider and changes to evaluate. And then a few weeks later, Donald Trump came down the escalator and all we've talked about since that time is him. Or at least everything we've talked about has eventually come back to him. And he's boring. And it's boring. Everything in our politics, literally everything, is triangulated around Trump. It doesn't matter what it is. Eventually, it will be plotted on a map with Trump at its center. And all that will matter is where you sit on that map. Are you pro-Trump or anti-Trump? Perhaps you're anti-anti-Trump. Perhaps you're anti-anti-anti-Trump. I can't count how many of my columns, columns in which, for better or for worse, I have bluntly written out what I think without embellishment or exclusion, have been explained back to me by writers on the left and right who have proceeded to tell me what I was really saying in them. And what I was really saying, apparently, whatever the day of the week, whatever I wrote, that I love or hate Trump. It's Trump, 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 Trump. It's absurd. There are costs to that. Imagine this behavior in any other circumstance. Imagine going to a tour of a brewery and having every question you asked being recast into some preposterous dichotomy that you don't care about. Hey, why do you use anodized aluminium in the fermentation process, you might ask? And the tour guide would look at you and he would say, Aha! So I suppose you're anti-alcohol, are you? At which point half the room would say, Well, he should be anti-alcohol because alcohol is bad. And the other half would say, no, 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 it's time to get on the alcohol train. And a few journalists standing in the corner would say that they can see what's going on here, that the question was asked to lay the groundwork for the discrediting of anodized aluminium, which is a functionally pro-alcohol position. And my God, I'm boring myself just thinking about this. Thing is, I care about politics. I really do. I just don't care about it in the same way that I care about sports. It's not a rah-rah my team sort of thing. And I don't care about it in the way that the truly obsessed do, which is as a replacement for civil society, rather than as a means by which to enable civil society. I care about policy. I care about how our government operates. I care about the federal system. I care about the integrity of our constitution. I care about foreign policy, although I don't know enough about it. And because I care about politics, I can't secede from it in the way that I would in any other realm. If my local brewery tour really did go like that, I'd just not go. Or I'd buy a different brand of beer. If pretty much any organization to which I belonged or relied upon, behaved like the Republican and Democratic parties do, I would leave. But here I can't. 
Politics may be boring in the worst way, but it's still extremely powerful. I have to care who the president is, or what Congress is up to, or what the courts are deciding. The choices that are being made, at present, by our nation's primary electorates, may, indeed, are frivolous. But they matter a great deal to the future of the United States and to the world. There are problems to fix in America. Inflation, the debt, foreign policy, crime, all manner of legal issues that you don't hear about until they affect you. But we don't seem to hear much about any of them anymore. We've given that up. We've abdicated from adulthood. I hope this changes. I thought it would have by now. Give or take, it's been like this for nine years, maybe a little more. And because we're used to it, it can start to feel normal. But it's not. We ought to remember that. Add in that Joe Biden is very obviously too old to be president, and you end up debating questions every day that don't just crowd out what you should be talking about, but that would be better suited to a game of trivial pursuit. What if the president's in jail when he's elected? What if he's incapable of doing his job but refuses to resign? What if both candidates in a general election are rendered unable to continue, but the ballots have already been printed? Every morning, I open the newspaper and I read sentences such as Once he was indicted for the third time, his nomination was inevitable. Or His aides have suggested that the president refused to campaign lest the public realize how frail he is. And I look around the room for the hidden camera. Look, I don't expect American politics to be an episode of the West Wing but I don't expect it to be an episode of Black Mirror either. And it is. And it's boring. And after all that, I need a drink. Or at least I need to talk about having a drink. But first, let me tell you all about a new podcast from a guy most of you will know. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their breakout How the World Works podcast, hosted by author and political commentator and my former partner in crime on Mad Dogs and Englishman, Kevin Williamson. Now, if you're not already listening to the show, which you should be, each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives. From flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe, some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs they've had that informed their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg, the good friends, the colleagues of National Review. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So to catch that and more... Be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org, How the World Works. That's cei.org forward slash How the World Works.
My guest this week is Peter Suderman, who is the features editor at Reason Magazine and the author of the Cocktails with Suderman Substack. Peter, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thank you so much for having me. There is absolutely nothing in the world that has ever given me <laughs> more joy than appearing on this podcast, with the possible exception of a really well-made cocktail. Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. All right, so you, Peter, are into cocktails. Now, that's not a euphemism. I don't mean you're a rapscallion or a drunk. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean that you know a lot about cocktails. You write about cocktails. You make cocktails. You drink cocktails and think about cocktails and dream about cocktails. How did you get into cocktails to that degree? So there are two answers to that question, and one is very personal and a little bit windy and idiosyncratic, and the other one is uh, kind of hilariously overtly political, and I'm going to give you both answers, starting with the first one. So the first one is that when I got married to my wife, who uh, just uh, for full disclosure purposes is a columnist at the Washington Post in the opinion section, when I got married to my wife, she was an intense foodie. She'd grown up in New York at a sort of very food-centric household at sort of the cusp of the 1970s, 1980s, sort of New York food revolution. She loved interesting, diverse, experimental food from all over the world. And she also was a really great cook. And I was neither of those things. But over the course of several years, she slowly coaxed me out of my shell. And one of the ways she did that, uh, one of the ways she turned me into a foodie, was we went to nice restaurants and we would have great food. And it would sort of turn me on to how good and how how interesting really well-made food could be. But part of it wasn't just that the food was good. It was that when I went with my wife, she's very smart about this stuff, and she would explain it. And she would sort of walk me through, oh, this is... This is how this was done. This is how the chef got this technique, this set of flavors. This is why they made this set of choices. And then even further, sometimes I would say, well, I really like this. Do you think you could make something like this at home? And sometimes the answer was no, but in many cases, the answer was yes. I maybe couldn't replicate this exactly, but I could take this idea and I could probably make something and then she would and it would be wonderful and delightful. And so this helped me sort of turn me on to the wider world of culinary delights. And at the same time, there was a kind of burgeoning cocktail scene in Washington, D.C., and I was uh, lucky enough to be able to go to some of the formative bars, including particularly the Columbia Room, which in its initial inception was this hidden speakeasy. You went through a, a door that didn't really look like a door in the back of a dive bar called The Passenger, and they served, you know, uh, they served really, really highly crafted cocktails. This was would have been t- 2009, 2010, back when that was still somewhat more rare. And those experiences just totally blew my mind. It was like every drink was a little miracle, a little magic trick. And over time, I realized, well, Megan can make all of this, make all of these meals or, or adapt all of these meals that we were having at nice restaurants to our home. Maybe maybe I could start to learn about cocktails. And so we would go out and I would have something that I thought was interesting and I'd go home and I'd do a little bit of Googling and sometimes I would find out that this was going to be a three-day infusion using 11 ingredients and I had none of them and there was no way this was going to happen. But sometimes it would turn out that actually the drinks were relatively simple. So I started with some of those simple drinks and worked my way up from there. And so that's the personal answer. The other answer is Donald Trump. 
And while most how, things in the world, I'm Donald so Trump? sorry. I'm so sorry to bring this into your cock into to the cocktails podcast. But most things in the world should not be about Donald Trump. And yet, back in 2015, you remember, may remember there were a series of uh, Republican debates with like 57 people on stage, right. including Donald Trump. And I work at Reason Magazine. We cover these debates. And so at the time, what we did was everyone gathered at my house to watch them. And those debates were awful. They were just physically unpleasant to watch and to cover, kind of soul deadening. And, you know, normally as these things are happening in the evening, right? Like I would just sort of have some beers out for people to have, uh, you know, we'd order pizza or whatever. And then I thought, what, what can I do that is relatively low effort to make this a little bit more fun? And the thing that I sort of settled on was, Maybe I could ma learn to make some signature or custom cocktails for each debate. And so I started with one, and then there were two, and then there were maybe four that were on a, a offer. And there were I was start starting to make menus, and I was buying bottles, you know, sometimes several bottles just to make one cocktail, right? Sort of much more specific ingredients. And you know, it's because when you start making cocktails, you're just like making stuff with whatever you happen to have around the house already. It's you know this stuff that's been and collecting dust in the back of the uh, of a liquor cabinet somewhere and then eventually you know sort of at the end of this process i realized wow i've i've got like a lot of bottles here i've got at that time it was you know it was 40 or 50 or 60 and then it became more it became 100 and then 200 and now it's probably in the 4 to 500 range wait, depending wait, wait, on how wait. you count you have 400 to 500 different bottles of yes wow so and then then the the next step from that was after you know a, a year or two after the uh, Donald Trump became president we were doing a renovation in my house including renovating the basement sort of from the the ground up and we built a bar in that space and that allowed me to keep a lot more bottles but also to have a dedicated space for making cocktails that was really set up for it precisely because back beforehand I was often sort of like it got to the point where I would have to keep bottles kind of stashed in different places around the house right there wasn't one central location so to make something I'd be like hang on a minute let me run upstairs and go into this closet or you know that sort of thing and this so building a bar in in my basement it's not a big bar it's about six feet by six feet but that you can actually stuff a lot of a lot of product into six feet by six feet you don't need a, a super large working space and so it just sort of spiraled from there and i have a i don't know i've always had a tendency to kind of dig into hobbies and interests whatever they are and with this one it, it kept paying off. It kept being wonderful. I, I loved the drinks. But what I also really liked was, you know, to go back to the debates part of this was making cocktails for other people and showing other people how wonderful a really great cocktail can be. And then, of course, when the pandemic hit, that made the world pretty weird in a bunch of ways. I wasn't going out really nearly as much. A lot of bars were closed. And so was it, I started a Substack that is in large part about trying to teach other home bartenders, how to make drinks well. Um, and that was for that period of time during the pandemic, again, when I wasn't going out and wasn't having a lot of people over, certainly nothing, nothing big. That allowed me to take that, to have that same experience of, okay, I, I can't have people over to make drinks for them and, and tell them about what, the, what I'm doing and show them sort of how wonderful this is. But I can do this through a newsletter and, and it has now been going for uh, more than three years, which I am honestly very surprised about.
So quick, quick side question on that. So you write this newsletter and it's didactic to a point. Can everyone do this? I mean, if you... That's a great put, question. Yeah, because you put a certain number of people randomly chosen in a room and then you say, be musical to one of the... Right? I mean, there are going to be people in the room who aren't. Some people, myself very much included, can't really dance. Some people, they, they don't have an eye for photography. Is it a, an innate talent, too, to be able to smell or taste or sense what goes in? How does that work? So my answer to this is to refer back to my cocktail writer and thinker hero. He's a guy named David Embury. And in the 1940s, he wrote one of the most important cocktail books ever written, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks. And The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks was the first cocktail book to really attempt to classify and to organize a kind of universal theory of what makes, not just of what makes a cocktail, but of all cocktails and how you can fit all of them into a couple of structures and concepts. And one of the things that is interesting about David Embury is that he was not a bartender ever never worked in the liquor industry in any way. He was, in fact, a tax lawyer. And you can see him treating the world of cocktails almost like uh, lawyers treat cases. They are looking for sort of lines of cases. Oh, this case is just like that previous case, except with a little twist here. Oh, it's just like this whole line of cases when we can treat this, right? We are looking for the precedents. We're looking for the precedents and building a lineage so that we can understand these things, not just as a, here as a recipe, but in fact, here is a, a recurring structure in, say, law or in the world of cocktails. And so it's a really important book, and it's my favorite cocktail book in many ways. It is the book that I try to write in the spirit of. And so to answer your question, the very first line in his book is, anyone can make great cocktails. Maybe it's good cocktails, but it's something like that. Anyone can. And I think that's right. Anyone can make good cocktails. And I think that some people probably have somewhat more of a natural aptitude towards sensing flavors and intuiting what's going to work well together. At the same time, once you understand the core concepts and some basic techniques, and particularly once you understand those core concepts and techniques and then have had a superior example, once you, this is why I tell people, don't just make these things at home, though you should. You should also go to a great bar and, and order some of these drinks so you can understand what they're supposed to be like, right? So you have that, that model, that idea in your head. Once you have that, I think most anyone, even with just a, a handful, you know, a, a not large collection of liquor, can make very good refined, elevated cocktails at home. You just have to think about it a little bit. And this is the thing that I try to encourage people to do is when you're making a drink, you just have to think about it a little bit. It's not about just sort of randomly pouring a bunch of stuff together, kind of, you know, oh, I'll eyeball it. No, it's about measuring. It's about understanding the core cocktail concepts and the core structures and how they work and why. And then once you do, once you know those forms, you can use that to make drinks, to modify drinks, to create entirely new drinks that no one has ever created before, or at least that are not recipes that you're following. And it's a really fun form to play with, in addition to also just being delicious and great to share with your friends. So when does this story start? You analogize to law. Did the Romans have cocktails? What is a cocktail? 
there are a bunch of answers to that question. And one is that, well, you know, uh, in the Middle East, they had spirits going back to, I don't know, 200 AD, something like that. I mean, well over a thousand years. And there's a whole long history of spirits. And then, of course, you get to the 16, 1700s and sort of European naval culture, which had punch, uh, right? There was a lot of rum. Sailors drink rum and lime juice in part two, uh, ward off scurvy. But the idea of the cocktail as we know it now started really in a pretty specific time, the very early 1800s. And we have the first published recipe for something called a cocktail. I want to say it's 1805. It might be 1806 or 1804, but it's right in the middle of the the 18 aughts. And that drink, the first thing that was called a cocktail was just whiskey, bitters, and sugar. And so that became the thing that we now think of as the old fashioned, because, of course, people took this thing called the cocktail, whiskey, bitters and sugar, and they modified it. And then you had the, you know, the improved cocktail and sort of uh, various versions of improved cocktails. And so eventually somebody was like, well, I just want an old fashioned cocktail. And that became the thing that we now know as the old fashioned today, which, of course, is it's whiskey and a couple of dashes of bitters and a a little bit of sugar or sugar syrup stirred together. Often there's an orange peel. Typically, it's served over ice, though, back in the very early 1800s in the initial incarnations, it would not have been just because ice was um, was not common at that point. But once ice became much more common in in the United States, that became a, a part of cocktails as well. And then you end up with dilution as being part of this. And so now someone some might say well you know th- that definition is is a little bit insufficient it's not just whiskey sugars and bitters it's whiskey sugars bitters and water which is very important um water is a big part of pretty much any cocktail that you're going to make but that's basically the idea of the cocktail nearly every drink that we have that is made today by professionals or that you're going to be reading about online is in some ways indebted to the old-fashioned cocktail, to the original cocktail, the whiskey cocktail, whiskey, sugar, bitters. And that's, it's strong, it's bitter, and it's sweet. And some drinks now, of course, are not strong, bitter, and sweet. They are strong, sour, and sweet. But it's still the same idea. You're adding a, some some sweetener to to liquor and then a further modifying agent. And that that really captures, you know, in a sort of ultra-simplistic way, just about every single cocktail that is made today. As a layman, I get the impression that we are living through what people who aren't laymen think is a renaissance in cocktails. And I and I read you making this point in a piece you wrote, and I've heard others say it. I hear people talk disparagingly about the cocktails of the 1970s and much more, with much more enthusiasm about cocktails now why what what changed between those times so to get to the 1970s i want to start just a little bit yeah sure i, sure. I want to start just a little bit further back i want to go back actually about 50 ish 60 ish years to prohibition okay because if you think about what happened during prohibition we shut down basically all legal liquor production distribution and sale in the united states for well over a decade So that meant that all of the people who were bartenders before Prohibition suddenly had no job. They couldn't do their job, at least not the same job. Two things happened as a result. Some of those bartenders uh, just quit. Many of them were older, and they were just like, well, you know what? I'm hanging up my hat. Anyway, many of them, though, went to Europe. But either way, 
what happened with prohibition was all of that knowledge, a whole industry's worth of knowledge, just got got lost. And it was no longer around in the United States. And so before Prohibition, there was this very thriving cocktail culinary scene. There's a guy uh, named Derek Brown, who's now doing a mostly non-alcoholic drinks, but actually he was the, the founder of the Columbia Room, the bar I mentioned earlier. At one point, he was the national spirits advisor to the National Archives, which made him, uh, his accurate joke statement, uh, made him the highest ranked bartender in the United States government. But his job was a as a sort of cocktail historian. And part of what he argued was that cocktails were the first uniquely American culinary art, that all of the other sort of culinary stuff that was going on in the United States had some sort of root in Europe, somehow or another. It was French cooking or, or you know, Italian cooking or, or whatever it is, but that cocktails were uniquely, were and are uniquely American. But then what happened was prohibition destroyed that uniquely American art. And it meant that all of the people who knew how to make cocktails not all of them, but the vast majority of people who knew how to make cocktails the pre-prohibition way, they were out of work, they stopped doing their thing, they moved to Europe, what, whatever it was. And so suddenly you just didn't have anybody who really understood what made a good drink. And th that persisted for decades after prohibition. And it really changed drinking culture in the United States so that by the time you get to the 1970s, drinks are club drinks. They are very heav heavily associated with disco, and they are mostly about getting drunk on trash and weird liquor that you pour way too much of kind of indifferently. And there are some exceptions, and some people have gone back and tried to rescue 1970s drinking culture and argue that actually there were some good things that we've overlooked. But by and large, the 1970s were the dark ages of drinking. And the reason was because the drinks weren't thoughtful. They weren't precisely calibrated to be delicious and to be wonderful and to sort of fit into some sort of mold. They were instead, they were kind of stunts. They were kind of gross. Often they were really, really sweet or just weird in some way. And they just weren't designed to be something that you could savor and think about it and really appreciate as a sensory experience because they were designed in, in many cases for sort of the burgeoning single bar scene that started in, in New York at the time and then also for a trashy disco club culture. So it's, I think, pretty fair to say that drinks in the 1970s were not great. So here's a paradox maybe you can resolve for me. Are cocktails more or less popular now than they were 50 or 60 years ago? So you mentioned food and the way you got into this. In the 1960s, at least in movies and photographs and biographies, people seem to drink cocktails with dinner. Now, when I'm out, I see much more wine with dinner than you would have seen in a photograph from the 60s. But I also see statistics that say we drink a lot more liquor now than we used to. Has the role of the cocktail changed? Is it more or less popular, or are we just drinking them at different times? This is an interesting question. I, I am not 100% sure I can answer that perfectly accurately, but here's what I can tell you. Cocktails that are designed, that are, that are made thoughtfully, are much more prevalent now than they have been, certainly at any time since before Prohibition. It was just not at all common until, until really quite recently, in the last 
25 years or so, and maybe more specifically the last 10 to 15 years, it was just not at all common for bartenders to actually think, oh, I'm going to make these drinks precisely and consistently and in a particular way. That wasn't something that happened very often in the 1950s, 60s, and certainly in the 1970s. Not that there was no one who was making a, a good drink in 1965, but it was relatively rare. And what we have seen over the past uh, 20 years or so, and actually, especially quite recently, is that beer in particular is on the decline. And young people are, in particular, are drinking a lot less beer than they used to and a lot more liquor when they do drink. And that liquor is more likely to be in cocktails. Now, at the same time, there's also pretty good evidence that younger people, and I mean like under 35s, are drinking quite a bit less than their peers were 20 or 40 years Overall. ago. Yes. Okay. Um, and so that like at, for that age, if you took... Uh, you know, a, a measure of, say, 20 to 30 year olds today versus a measure of 20 to 30 year olds in 1980, the 20 to 30 year olds in 1980 would just be drinking a lot more volume of, of alcohol than the 20 to 30 year olds today. But when people drink, especially young people, when they choose to, they are choosing to drink cocktails. And what we are seeing with with this generation of drinkers is that the thing they want out of basically all types of drinking, it's not just booze, is a kind of exquisite novelty experience. And that's why when you go into a convenience store now, you see it's not just Diet Coke and Coke and Sprite. It's every possible variation of soda and kombucha and sparkling water. I, I mean, banana, oat milk with God knows what you know in it, right? Like all of these sort of novelty drinks are designed to appeal to a culture that really wants every single drink to be an elevated and exquisite experience. And cocktails are a big part of that. Cocktails, in part, have trained this generation to see drinking opportunities, not just as like, well, you know, I'm going to have another cup of cheap gas station coffee, but nope, I'm going to have a drink. It should be a really good one, whether that's alcoholic or not. All right. So you write this blog and newsletter yeah it's a newsletter blog. yeah blog newsletter they're all the same now so i'm not going to mention where this is but there is a an airport lounge that i've been to a few times as is a good friend of mine and the bartender there does not know how to make any drinks that is a common problem at airport lounges yeah and this drives me less crazy than it drives him because I drink much more wine. But he's a cocktail guy, and uh, it uh, irritates him because this person doesn't know how to make anything that he asks for. And I've started to wonder, and you're a good person to ask this, how long would it take for someone to go from being me, that is, able to make two or three cocktails, to being able to work at a bar where Peter Suderman shows up and pretty much anything you ask for, they would be able to do. How long, how long is that process? Well, that's a, that's a complicated question. Um, so let's break this down a little bit. Let's start with you, Charles C.W. Okay. Cook. I could teach you to make a half a dozen of the core classics better than average, maybe not the very best in the world, but better than average, where you would understand the difference between 
a very bad version, a just okay version, and a superior version. I could teach that to you in a couple of evening classes. Okay. I mean, it, it would take some time, and, and part of it would be just doing it a bunch of times and tasting. And I, I would say we would probably focus on you know four or five core drinks, the Martini, the Manhattan, the Negroni, the Old Fashioned, uh, some sort of sour, probably a daiquiri, and maybe a tiki drink like the Mai Tai, maybe a flip, right? Something like that. We might include a, a sparkling drink in there like a, a Collins. I don't know, maybe that's seven drinks, but like sort of just kind of core versions of like not particularly complicated versions of classic drinks that are very common. And you can learn that stuff probably not in half an hour, probably not in one hour, but in a couple of one hour sessions, a handful of them, I should say. To go to being a bartender in an airport lounge, specifically since you asked about that, is just going to be a very different thing. Because what airport lounge bartenders do is the thing that they do is not make drinks well. The thing that they do is manage customers. And a huge amount of the bartending school, the stuff that you learn at bartending school, if you go to one of these sort of uh, one-week bartending schools uh, that have existed around the country for the last several decades, what they teach you is make drinks fast, clean up your station, and here's how to deal with a customer quickly and efficiently so that the customer won't be mad at you. They'll teach you a little bit about like, oh, you know, here's what a martini is and that sort of thing. But that's, it's mostly about the kind of the business side of it, if that makes sense, rather than the art side of it. If you want to learn how to make all the drinks, and I mean, you want to have 500 drinks in your head, you're going to have to learn to make 500 drinks. And you start with the, the core concepts, and that can be learned in, like I said, a, a handful of evening sessions. But then you're going to have to make every one of those 500 drinks at least, well, at least once, but many of them several times. Yeah, so how long would that take to get to that point? I mean, I, I think you can sort of, once you have the basics down, you can learn a drink a night, especially if you're taking notes like I do. And this is a thing that I had to learn at some point was I've got to take notes. This, and this is actually one thing that has, that has made writing the newsletter easier is that I have notes on virtually every drink, every new drink, I should say, that I have made at my own house going back eight, nine years now, going back about nine years. And so it's just, it's a huge, huge number of drinks and notes and variations and variations and variations. And you, you make, what well, you make three versions of a drink every, uh, you take a drink and you make three versions of it every single night. Like you'll learn that drink, right? And, and there's a certain point where you, how do I say this? I'm going to put it in terms that you as it would understand as a writer. Okay. Making a cocktail is a lot like learning to write an op-ed because you know, look, we both know like there's an art to it and you have to think about, well, what's going to go in paragraph three and six and, you know, what, what's the argument I'm going to, but there is a very consistent formal structure that goes into a 750 or 800 word op-ed. And the first thing you actually really need to wrap your head around, if you are going to write op-eds regularly, especially in like a, for a newspaper that enforces a word count is how to just do the structure every single time. And it's about learning and understanding that structure. And then once you understand that structure, you can start to play around within it. And that's true with cocktails as well. And so the first thing you have to learn are these core structures that just sort of, that control 
not every, literally every single drink ever made, but the vast, vast majority of cocktails. And you kind of learn those structures and then you learn, okay, here's, here's a Manhattan, which is two ounces of whiskey, one ounce of vermouth and two dashes of bitters. Okay. How can I twist that by taking that vermouth portion, that one ounce of vermouth, and maybe I can split it in half and have a half ounce of vermouth and a half ounce of an Amaro. Oh, wait, maybe I can leave that full ounce in there and I can add one teaspoon of something on top as a flavoring agent, right? When am I going to split inside? When am I going to add to the structure, right? Make it just a little bit of a bigger drink. And you, you just... You just have to do it a whole bunch of times. I think for most people, you can become, if you really focus on it, you can become very good, as in better than almost anyone who isn't like a really serious professional in probably something like six to nine months. But you're going to have to make cocktails more nights of the week than not, six to nine months. On the other hand, you can become very good at making a select group of really good classics very quickly. That's, like I said, it's it's a handful of evenings. To get to the point where you can run the bar, I mean, I, that's it's like learning a job. And, and a lot of it's like, where are, you, where are you stuffing the dish rags at the end of the night so that the morning bartender knows where they are? It's, a, it's just a, hu- a huge amount of it is just sort of like local uh, administrative stuff that isn't about the art of drink making. Are there great drink makers whose names people know if you ask people name a chef they'll say thomas keller right you know he owns the restaurants he has the masterclass show they know his name is yeah so so two of the people who are most influential in this world are are dale DeGroff, who ran the rainbow room in new york in 1990s and he was one of the very first bartenders in the world to bring back pre-prohibition cocktails. So he took over as head bartender of the Rainbow Room, and some managerial boss type person was like, hey, take a look at this, and handed him the Jerry Thomas bartender's guide from the 1860s this was back when you could get that copies of this 18 of this this is the very first cocktail book ever published uh, ever um and uh this was back when you could get copies of it relatively cheaply now it's that book if you can find an original copy it's thousands of dollars and he looked at it and was like oh oh they had the secret knowledge and we lost it. And then he instituted a program of we're going to do drinks, maybe not exactly like Jerry Thomas did them, but in the Jerry Thomas style, in the pre-prohibition style at the Rainbow Room. So that was a big deal. And then the next thing that happened was in 1999, a guy named Sasha Petrosky opened a bar in New York City, this tiny, tiny little space. I mean, like you literally, the bartenders are like having to, you know, uh, kind of suck in their guts as they like squeeze sidle from you know one side of the bar to the other uh, this place maybe seats 55 people i'm not even sure it seats that opened a bar called milk and honey and petrosky more than anyone was the godfather of the modern cocktail scene he just had this idea that that cocktails should be should be exquisite they should be fussed over they should be these small extremely precisely measured portions that they should be served over large clear ice i mean he was obsessed with the with big ice long before anybody was thinking about this sort of thing 
And he really revolutionized the bar scene. Sadly, he passed away in his mid-40s, I want to say eight or 10 years ago. But he was incredibly influential. And the and the early bartenders who worked with him and then sort of spread out, many of them have also become influential. Uh, so you have folks like Phil Ward and Joaquin Simo, who went through Death and Company, which was sort of the the next bar on the list of, uh, or one of the next bars on the list if you're going to make a, a sort of a history of important bars. There was also the Flatiron Lounge run by Audrey Saunders, who is a very important mentor to a, a lot of cocktail, uh, very important bartenders. And so, yeah, there are absolutely there are absolutely folks whose names that people into cocktails know, and there are folks whose whose drinks I gravitate towards. I mentioned Joaquin Simo and and Phil Ward already. Phil Ward is just a genius, and he is the guy who I won't say he was the very very first, but he really was probably the single. He was one of the most influential bartenders in introducing mezcal to the cocktail world in the united states he invented a drink called the oaxacan old-fashioned which is actually more of a tequila old-fashioned but he had this idea of uh, we can take the old-fashioned format we can take this idea of the old-fashioned that i was talking about earlier that goes back to the early 1800s and instead of making it with whiskey like it's always been made what, what if we made it with a combination of tequila and mezcal and what if instead of using sugar or sugar syrup what if we used agave syrup? Because in fact, tequila and mezcal are both spirits derived from the agave plant. And it's a delicious drink. It's relatively easy to make if you have the ingredients. But it was just this, this sort of spark of creative innovation. And he still is just like producing great new drinks. I mean, uh, not 15, 20, not quite 20 years later here. Um, and so every time I see a new Phil Ward drink, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, and so I don't know if I think these folks are, these folks are obviously not household names, but they ha many of them have been written up in the New York Times many times. And some of them have written cocktail books and people who know cocktails know to look for Simo and Ward and Saunders drinks because, because those folks hit it out of the park pretty much every time. And you can trust their recipes. They have done it a zillion times. They have made this drink every possible way and found the best way to make it. So here's a question that interests me and interests me really with anyone who is good at something or has developed a great love of something. Has this made you a snob? I don't mean that pejoratively. What I mean is there's two directions I think people who get really good at something or who learn a lot about something can go in. In the first direction, they prefer good things to not good things, but they can still deal with the not good things. And then in the other direction, you have people who, once they have tasted the really great stuff, they say, oh, I can no longer cope with anything that's not of that quality. So if you were in an airport lounge, would you, would you order a cocktail? Would, would you... Would you sort of uh, sort of decline to do so for f for fear that it would be bad? I mean, what, what's this done to you, Peter? Uh, I would decline to do so not for fear that it would be bad, but for absolute certainty that it would be right. bad. There is there are only a handful of airport bars at all that serve good cocktails. In fact, uh, the great cocktail writer Robert Simonson, who writes a Substack, uh, has written many books and has 
been the lead cocktail contributor for the New York Times for a long time, actually just published a guide to airport martinis, which is great. In it, he says the vast majority of them are bad. However, there are a handful of bars, one in uh, New Orleans, another in Atlanta in particular, that, that do make superior versions that are worth drinking. He's literally the guy who, the most recent author of a, of a book just called The Martini. His, he knows martinis better than almost anyone. So he's, he's a very reliable guide on this. But there are almost no airport bars or lounges, in particular the, the kind of the club lounges, you know, the, I don't know, Admiral's Club or whatever it is that you're, the, the paid membership places, in part because of some of the union rules and, uh, that govern airport workers. You're just not going to get great bartenders there. It's not even just union rules. It's also corporate rules that determine which ingredients you can use and sort of some of the specs that they are kind of sort of supposed to follow. So this is a very good question about snobbery, because I think there are definitely people who would say, Peter, you're a cocktail snob. And that's fair to some degree. But what I want to say is, I think people should drink the thing that they like. And if you like something great, it doesn't in any way bother me. I'm not the least bit offended by someone liking something that maybe isn't to my taste or maybe that I think isn't ideal. I do think people should try things that are superior, that are excellent. They should get a sense of like what a, what a really dialed in, precisely made martini can taste like. But like if people should drink what they what they like and what they want to drink and it doesn't in any way bother me but for me i don't drink cocktails unless i think there is a a very high likelihood that the drink is going to be at least interesting and ideally quite good and that means that in most bars i don't drink cocktails this does present occasional complications for for me where i'm like i'm the cocktail guy and people are like well what should i order here and i it's you know a random hotel bar and i'm you have to nothing. tell them <laughs> you should order a beer or yeah. whiskey neat and i can help you pick a whiskey if you'd like but these bartenders are not going to make great drinks because the thing that they were trained to do is handle customers and be efficient in terms of their their pouring and like and 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 it's not not about the art of the cocktail it's about the business of being a, a bartender who has to manage those people. And I, I like those bars. Often I have good times at hotel bars. I have good times at dive bars. I don't think that great cocktails are necessary for a great drinking establishment. You can have a good time at a place that doesn't really, really, really fuss over their vucare, right? It's not a... That's not the only thing that matters in a bar. But... Cocktails are expensive, and I generally don't think it's worth paying a lot of money for an expensive cocktail if I don't think that that cocktail is going to be at least pretty good, and it should be quite good. So another quick side question. You mentioned the gentleman who had written about airport bars. Robert Simonson. Right. So Robert Simonson wrote a post in which he pointed out where you could get a good martini in airports. Now, he presumably had to drink quite a lot of martinis to find this out. Indeed, he starts his post by, by talking about how some number of years ago, he just started ordering a martini every time he at, at a bar, every time he was about to get on a flight, and realizing that most of them would be bad. And it became a sort of a ritual and a dare and uh, a kind of experiment. It's 
very fun and kind of funny. So, do you lose your ability to judge the quality of cocktails the more you drink? I mean, is there a certain amount that you can have before you have to say, that's enough for today, tomorrow I will go to other airport bars and discover whether their martinis are good? Or is that not really how it works? So if you have passed out, which I definitely don't <laughs> recommend, you will not be able to judge the quality right. of the next cocktail that is served to you. If you are maybe a drink or two from passing out, which again, I do not recommend because in fact, drinking shouldn't mostly be about getting drunk. It should be about enjoying the drink or the company or both, ideally. You will not be able to tell. So yes, there's a if, you, if you're drinking for a very long time, your ability to tell a good drink is going to be reduced. I actually think that the bigger issue is there are certain types of drinks that you can drink that will kind of mess up your palate for a period of time. Mm, what are they? So I would just, this is not a, a, it's not boozy, but if you drink a half a cup of coffee and then try to sip a cocktail immediately after, you will notice that your palate has been kind of messed up by that intense bitter flavor. It's not like you need to drink some water in between. You need to wait a little while. Similarly, very high proof whiskey. I love like so in addition to cocktails, I, I really like whiskey. I'm I'm not quite a hardcore collector like some of these folks who are, you know, have their whiskey bunkers and you know, we'll we'll talk about like, oh, I, I'm buying, you know, this is my nest egg, right? This whiskey collection has become, you know, it's Stanley Cups. Uh, if you guys if listeners know what Stanley Cups are, it's beanie babies, but for 45-year-old men with disposable income. Not that there's anything wrong with middle-aged men with disposable income, but the whiskey collecting thing has gotten a little out of control. But I do like interesting, unique, very high-proof whiskey. You have an ounce or two of that, it's just going to blow out your palate and you're going to need to drink some water and wait a long time before you want to try to taste something that has nuance to it. And that is true with a lot of very pushy, very aggressive flavors. You need you need to clear your palate and you need to give it both to drink some water and to to give it some time. All right, here's my last question, but it's a longer question. I don't know if you're familiar with the British radio show Desert Island Discs, but the conceit is that each guest is sent away to a desert island. And they have to spend the rest of their life there. And they have to choose five records, recordings, that they love. And that's all they're going to be able to play forever. So if you were doing Desert Island cocktails, and you had to take the ingredients for five cocktails, and you couldn't use those ingredients to make anything other than those five cocktails, what would they be? This is a difficult question. I'm supposed to answer this off the cuff. Okay, um, let's see what I can do here. Uh, 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 we're going to have to start with the old fashioned, and it, okay. specifically with Tom Macy's old fashioned. So Tom Macy's old fashioned is a, just it's it's a classic old fashioned in every way, but it has just a slight twist or two it very specifically calls for wild turkey 101 rye whiskey and then also uses demerara syrup and two different types of aromatic bitters it's just a delight i probably i mean i make 
dozens of those over the course of any given year and have for quite a few years now. It's a drink that wows me every single time. It reminds me that part of what I love about cocktails is making some crazy new weird thing that I, it was a bunch of ingredients I've never heard of before. Uh, but part, but what I really like, what I really like about cocktails is just making a really, really good version of a simple drink that I know well. The next thing I am going to bring with me is a Mezcal Negroni, not a Gin Negroni. As much as I love a Gin Negroni, I, and I really do, my heart lies with the Mezcal Negroni, which just gives it this sort of extra smoke to it that it's the best use of Mezcal in a cocktail. I talked about the Oaxacan Old Fashioned earlier, but no, it, it, that's a very good drink, but it's the Mezcal Negroni that's just like, oh yeah, this is what the Negroni format, uh, which is a, a base spirit like Mezcal or gin or even whiskey, plus sweet vermouth and uh, an Amaro, typically Campari, not always, in typically in, e in equal parts, again, not always. Like That's what the idea of the Negroni was meant for, is the Mezcal Negroni, not the Gin Negroni, not the Boulevardier, not the Rum Negroni, the Kingston Negroni, as, as some people call it. Nope. It's the Mezcal Negroni. The next drink I am going to take with me is the Jungle Bird. The Jungle Bird, uh, to go back I've to your question about... I've never even heard of that. Yeah, so the Jungle Bird, to go back to your question about the 1970s, the Jungle Bird is a 1970s tiki drink that was found by a bartender in the aughts and rescued, took the idea from the page, and then built a completely different recipe for it, right? Rearranged the proportions so that it is a black rum, Campari, pineapple, Demerara syrup, and lime juice tiki drink. It is a bitter, weird rum tiki drink that is a little bit difficult to make. Like, it, this, is, this, this takes more effort than making a Manhattan. You have to juice a pineapple. Like, it takes a little bit of time. But man, if you make a jungle bird right, it's just one of these drinks that you will taste and you'll be like, my brain could not have imagined this combination of, of flavors. It's like, I don't know, it's, it's like hearing a chord that you didn't imagine could exist in music for the first time, and it's glorious. So that's the jungle bird. Sounds very Florida. Uh it's not a. It's not actually a very Florida drink, uh, no. though. Uh, if you wanna, if you would like to read a profile of maybe the most Florida cocktail, I do have a short write-up of the drink called the Bushwhacker, which okay. is a crazy sort of pina colada, ice cream pina colada thing, in a, our Florida issue of the of Reason Magazine. Uh, so now that's three. Where am I going from there? I guess for my gin drink. So I'm trying to spread out the base ingredients. This is one thing right. I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get whiskey drink, a mezcal drink. We've got a rum drink. So my next wing, my next one is I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a martini, and specifically I'm gonna have a 50/50 martini made with overproof old rush gin and Koki di Torino dry vermouth. So that's a very specific combination. But this is my favorite way to make a 50/50 martini. So. Uh, that that means that it's equal parts dry vermouth and gin. That's kind of the opposite of the very dry martini that people uh, will often order, which, which is mostly, which is just like, there's no gin in it. It's really just gin, excuse me, there's no dry vermouth in it. It's just gin stirred over ice. That's not even really a martini. That's just gin 
turn over ice. That's not, I don't even know what that is. No, I like a 50-50 martini and I want it made with Coqui di Torino dry and overproof old Raj. And now I've got one more and I feel like I should choose something really weird here. Something really unusual. This is, this is so tough. The, the last one here is going to be a drink called the North Sea Oil. Okay. The North Sea oil is a kind of a Manhattan riff that if you're not familiar with cocktails and you don't understand how they work, you'd look at the recipe and you'd be like, Peter, that's not a Manhattan. What in the world are you talking about? So it is one and a half ounces of aquavit, which is a Nordic dill infused kind of gin, a half ounce of Peaty scotch, preferably Laphroaig, uh, which is a great sort of uh, earthy, smoky scotch. And then some Coqui Americano, which is a very slightly bitter sort of um, blanc vermouth. And then a, a little bit of orange liqueur. But if you look at the proportions, the sweet and the strong are in the same they function the same way as as a Manhattan or as a martini because Manhattans and martinis are actually kind of the same drink idea, but uh, in negative. And so this is this is not a super well known drink. It was created at the Nomad Hotel Bar in New York, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, something like that. But it is one of my favorite, slightly odd, slightly unusual drinks sort of the, the kind of thing that you wouldn't quite expect and yet when you look at it when you break it down structurally you see it's actually it's the same idea as a manhattan or a martini it's two ounces of base spirit and one ounce of sweetener stirred together and you know there's a little bit of bitter that comes through uh, from the the coqui americano this might sound a little bit complicated to, to people who are not familiar with cocktails, but this is actually part of the joy of, of understanding cocktails is that when you sort of get deep into the weeds of these things, you can take a really weird drink with a bunch of weird ingredients that doesn't look like anything at all to you, and you can understand that, oh, wait, this is actually a very classical drink in a form and in a structure that I understand that's just been played with and artfully tweaked a little bit. And that drink, the North Sea Oil, by uh, the, the guy who invented it, his name was Leo Robichek, is about as good an example of that idea, of sort of the, the, the fundamental, like the promise of cocktails, which is you can just take these, like these hand, this handful of very basic structures and you can vary them infinitely forever. And there's always something new and delightful to find from them. All right. Well, on that note, let me ask where people can find you on the internet and in print. Uh, so they can find my work at Reason.com, where I am the features editor and a regular on the Reason Roundtable. And if you want to know about cocktails, cocktailswithsuderman.substack.com. It is the home bartender's guide with tips, tricks, anecdotes, opinions, and recipes. So many recipes. There's a recipe just about every week. But what I'm trying to do with that newsletter is, is really just help people who want to make these drinks, who've had good experiences at bars and like, can I make that at home? Probably the answer is you can. And that, and my Substack is designed to show you how. Fantastic. All right, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.
This has been truly delightful. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Peter Suderman. Thank you to COVID for leaving my voice sounding like this. Thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you next week.